Let's uh, turn now with uh, the Lord's help to the Song of Solomon and chapter 5. Song of Solomon and the fifth chapter, chapter 5. Now the, the Song of Solomon uh, consists really of a collection of songs and uh, they're bound together by the same theme and that theme is the relationship between uh, Solomon and the Shulamite woman. Solomon and the Shulamite both have the S-L-M consonants in their names which of course you'll recognise in the word Shalom it means peace Solomon here is the Prince of Peace the Kingly Man of Peace the Shulamite is the Princess of Peace and of course they represent the Lord Jesus Christ and his Church So every time we come to the Song of Solomon, we're always to remember that. Of course, there are some who question that, um, and there are many reasons for believing the position that I've just outlined, but I think even the very names of the principal characters remind us who is in this song. It is Christ and his church. And I'd like for a few weeks, really, to consider this fifth chapter with you, uh, from verse 2 onwards, which is where this particular song begins. So let's read the opening two verses of it. That's from verse 2. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? Especially these words in verse 3, I have taken off my robe, how can I put it on again? I have washed my feet, how can I defile them? Now it occurred to me some time ago that there is a, a very clear parallel to be drawn in Scripture between the experience of the church here on her bed partly asleep, partly awake, a parallel between that experience and the experience of the church in the Garden of Gethsemane, the church represented by Peter and by James and by John. In both cases, obviously, we find the church asleep. Here she says in verse 2, I sleep. In the Garden of Gethsemane, 
we're told that they slept. And in both cases, the sleep that comes upon the church is just an outward physical manifestation of their inward spiritual condition. In other words, they sleep physically because they are asleep spiritually. And one is meant to be a picture of the other. And the spiritual sleep means that they have fallen into a condition where they are slothful and lethargic and sadly at the same time full of self-sufficiency and self-confidence. I suppose in a way these two things always go together. When we have confidence in self or when we are self-sufficient then we are not God-reliant. One is bound to lead to the other. And that goes back really to the very first sermon I was led to preach to you uh, when the prophet was told that it is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And uh, when we begin to labour in might and power, we begin to lose our spiritual life. So that self-sufficiency and spiritual sloth and lethargy is a toxic mix. And it's caused, of course, no surprises here, it's caused by a lack of watchfulness and a lack of prayer. Of course, that's what the Lord called his disciples to do in Gethsemane. Watch and pray, lest you yourselves fall into temptation. Yes, there's no doubt that he said also, and I'll come to this in a second, watch with me. And pray with me, but watch for yourselves, lest you fall into temptation. But sad to say, they slept again and slept again. Now sometimes we fall into spiritual sleep and we're not aware of it. In fact, that's ordinarily the case. Like Ephraim and Hosea, we're told of the northern church, the church in Israel, Ephraim has grey hairs on his head and he knows it not. Most men can identify with that. Most women do. A time when you suddenly realise that many of the hairs of your head have gone grey. Well, that was true of Ephraim. He was spiritually losing strength and declining, but he did not know it. Samson, of course, got up and shook himself as he had done before. But solemnly we're told that he did not know that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. He did not know that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. And the same, sadly, was true of Peter and of James and John, whom the Lord chose to accompany him to the innermost parts of the garden. He had left the others elsewhere. He took those three to be with him, to watch with him, to pray with him. Sadly, they fell asleep. And that sleep was symptomatic of where they were spiritually at that time. There is no doubt but that towards the close of our Lord's ministry, 
the disciples were not as eager to hear, they weren't as quick to discern, weren't as quick to understand, and weren't following him as closely as they ought to be. Something that was only healed by the resurrection and by the powerful advent of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, Peter had such a different view of himself from what the reality actually was that it's almost unbelievable. He thought that he was very strong when in fact he had come to be weak. He wasn't always weak, but he had come to be weak. The reasons for that belong to another time. So what you have is a sleepy church, just like you have here a church reclining on her bed. And then we have a calling saviour in both cases. The sleepy church in Gethsemane is called to wake by Christ and the sleepy church here too is called to wake by Christ. We're told that he speaks and he knocks. It is the voice of my beloved. The church hears that. She hears her Lord, her Saviour and her beloved. And not only does he speak but he knocks. There's an urgency. There's an approach in providence. Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. Now this call is a call to intimate fellowship. That's what he desires from her. Uh, for a season he's been away, and he's been away because she chose that. When the when the Lord leaves, it's because we have put him away. We have quenched or grieved the Holy Spirit of God with which we have been sealed until the day of redemption. The default condition of the Christian is for the Saviour to be near us and for us to enjoy his presence and the warmth of his fellowship. Now, there has been a distance and now the Lord comes back to see how she is to call her and to see how she responds. And to encourage her, he reminds her of his love for her. He calls her his sister and his love and his dove and his perfect one. All these are terms of closeness and endearment, just reminders from our Saviour to our souls that we are greatly esteemed and greatly loved by himself. And if we ourselves are in the right place, we can hardly read these terms and understand them as terms for ourselves without being overwhelmed by that thought. That the Lord esteems us like that, that he sees us like that. Even when he calls us, his dove, it reminds us elsewhere of where he says to her, My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your countenance, let me hear your voice, because your voice is sweet and your countenance is lovely. 
So he reminds her of his love for her. And as well as reminding her of that, he reminds her of how much he does on her behalf. Even on this occasion, he tells her that his head is covered with dew and his locks with the drops of the night. Now, when we find uh, the beloved in the Song of Solomon, even though he is the man, Christ Jesus, we are directed to his locks. We're told even in verse 11 of this chapter, which I'll come to, that his head is like finest gold, his locks are wavy and black as a raven. That's reminding us of his youthfulness, of his vigour, but also of his consecration to God. Because the only man who was allowed to have long hair under God's law was the Nazarite. And the Nazarite was the symbol of holiness. He was a walking symbol of utter consecration to God. And that is how the Lord Jesus Christ appears as the beloved in the Song of Solomon. But not only are his locks um, in evidence, but they are with the drops of the night and covered with dew. He has come a distance. He has travelled through the night. He shows every sign of someone who has made an effort to draw near to his own beloved. That should be a reason for her or for you to draw near the Saviour. So a sleepy church is called by a a loving and a self-denying Saviour. Waken and come with me. Same is true in Gethsemane. The Lord called to Peter and James and John to have close, watchful, prayerful time with him in the intimacy of the Garden of Gethsemane and to watch with him just for an hour. And you'd think it would be enough encouragement for them to stay awake just to see him and to observe the great distress of soul that he was entering into, which he made plain before he even began to pray that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful and distressed. And surely a call to stay with him and to watch with him would be a call that they would be so eager to respond to, to stay with their Saviour and to watch and to pray with him. Even on one of the occasions when he returned to remonstrate with them, There were signs of blood on his face. But nothing changed the fact that after a few minutes they would fall back to sleep. Now Christ sometimes draws near to ourselves and sadly finds us asleep. And I mean by that that we have fallen into a slothful, uh, careless or lethargic spiritual condition. And uh, most of you, if not all of you, will know times when that has been true. 
and you've lost the Lord's countenance and you've lost the intimacy of the Lord's fellowship because you have alienated him from you. But then, well, that's the way it would stay forever if it wasn't for his grace. You'd never move back unless he came and invited you. And praise God, that's what he does for us. We've seen that time and time again. And that's when the sovereignty and the wonder of the sovereignty of Christ's grace really comes home to us when, in spite of our lack of desire, comes. He comes and he calls. And he calls us to prayer and to fellowship. And that kind of call is often accompanied with a knock. It's a providential spiritual prompt that sometimes comes to you from nowhere, or it appears to come from nowhere. Maybe it's a good book that someone puts into your hand, and you open it, and you're aware that the Lord is calling you. It can sometimes be even a visit from a Christian friend who is alive and awake, and perhaps just reminds you of what it was like for yourself to be alive and awake. And just observing that man or that woman or hearing them is a call. There's a knock on your heart and it's saying, open for me, my sister and my love. Or it can even be a sermon that is spirit-filled and directed from heaven like an arrow to your heart, reminding you, like I said, that you are his sister and his love and that he has endured much for you in the night. So a sleepy church and a calling saviour. And then, sadly, we have a reluctant church. A reluctant church. In verse 3, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? Now she's in a strange state because she's asleep and awakening at the same time. But the kind of awakening that she's got isn't enough to get her fully out of her sleep. She can process what's being said, but she doesn't. She doesn't have the spiritual energy somehow to respond to it. She doesn't have it. And what strikes you here is the poverty of her excuses. Is that not right? I mean, when you, when you read these two excuses, how pathetic they are. How pathetic they are. For someone who has travelled the night to come back to her. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? Is it that difficult? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? Is that difficult? Supposing you had endured something for your own spouse. Let's say that there had been an estrangement for a while and 
you decided to overcome that. Even if the fault lay with your spouse, you decided to overcome it, and you went an extra mile, you endured something, you did something, and then when you invited her into your fellowship or into your embrace, embrace or you invited him, this was the response. It would be, well, insulting, is it not? Is it not insulting to give such a response to the beloved? She's finding reasons not to get out of bed, finding reasons not to open the door, although she really loves her beloved. She actually really loves her beloved. But yet her state is so bad that she can't respond to him, even when he's addressing her with these terms of endearments. Um, sin is an awful thing. It's a terrible plague. I don't know if you've been aware yourself of situations where you've come to a place where you're conscious that you're not who you are to be and where you are to be. And what's more, at such a time, there's a prompt. There's a, a little kindling and a little awakening. It's not as though you feel you ought to read the Bible, but you actually desire to. But it's still not enough to get you to reach out and get a hold of it. Amazing. Amazing that the desire could be there, but still you won't do it. God in his grace overcomes the obstacles, and yet you won't reach out your hand to lay hold of them. Ah, sad to say, friends, most of us have known that situation. And how warranted the Lord would be to go away and never to return. But the wonder is that he hasn't done that, and neither will he for his own people. The same was true in Gethsemane. After all, the Lord did call them to watch and pray, but also to watch with me, and they still chose sleep. Even when the Lord pled with them, twice they still chose sleep. They couldn't rouse themselves even for an hour. Now you say to yourself, well, that is really something else, that they couldn't do it for an hour. But what can't you do for an hour? What, what is it that so many who say they love the Lord, what is it that they find so difficult to do for an hour? To come to a prayer meeting? No, I've got something else to do. Just like the woman who had taken off her robe and couldn't put it on again. Just an hour to gather with the saints and uh, to worship Christ, to, get, to worship God together in the name of Christ and to pray for the things that matter, for the glory of Christ and the extension of his kingdom. Oh, I just came home a while back and... I've only just finished my dinner. How, how can I just go straight back out again? 
it's not any better, any better than this. What, what about perhaps just an hour or half an hour's fellowship in, a, in, a, in an old Christian saint's house? Oh, I don't know, I've got this and I've got that to do. Or, or what about just an hour for yourself in the day which contains some prayer, some meditation and some reading of the word and the reading of a good book. These are four distinct spiritual exercises which run and flow into each other and would it be difficult to set an hour aside for that? What about even half? What about even half an hour? How many there are in churches today that have so many reasons for not spending half an hour with the Saviour? The fact that you're here, brothers and sisters, is an indication that you're not of that number. But how many there are? How many there are? Can you not watch with me when my hair is wet with dew and my head with the drops of the night? You know, the, the state of the church here is so different to the state of the church um, or the psalmist when we read it earlier in Psalm 63. When I do thee upon my bed, remember with delight, and when on thee I meditate in watches of the night. That's not her condition here at all. It's not her condition here at all. Is it yours and mine? Well, let me just say that it certainly should be our default condition. It should be our default condition. It should be the unusual thing or the abnormal thing that we are slothful and lazy on our beds, rather that we take delight to meditate on him in the watches of the night. Now sometimes when the Lord entreats us like that, open for me, and we say, well, I can't. Sometimes he goes away like he does here and he leaves us again. It's interesting in Gethsemane itself that when he came back to the disciples, uh, the last time he came back, he said to them, sleep on now, he said. Sleep on now. Um, very interesting words because there was no time for sleep. The, the people who were betraying them were, as, as the Lord said, they were, they were just at hand. They were actually coming into the garden at that time. And he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? So he's talking to them. They're actually awake. But he says to them, are you still sleeping? Notice that. Are you still sleeping and resting? The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed. Rise. And let us be going. In other words, they're going to get up, they're going to go out of the garden, but they're still fast asleep. Sleep on now. What the Lord means by that is that the that the spiritual stupor into which they've fallen is going to continue. 
because they haven't watched and prayed, they are going to be exposed to greater temptation than they would have been otherwise, and they're going to fall in it. Peter, of course, tragically so. Here, of course, the Lord goes away again too. He puts his hand by the latch of the door, then her heart yearns, she rises up to open for her beloved, and in verse 6, I opened for my beloved, but my <coughs> beloved had turned away, and he was gone. Ah, but friends, he doesn't leave without encouraging her again to get up and to follow him. That takes us to the mirror on the door, which God willing will come to next time. May the Lord bless her meditation on his word. Let's stand to pray. O Lord, O God, how precious indeed is thy grace, and under the shadow of thy wings men's sons their trust shall place, and with the abundance of thy house we shall be well satisfied. From rivers of thy pleasures thou wilt drink to us provide, and we are thankful for your patience and for the tenderness of your love and the warmth of your entreaties. How often, Lord, you have stirred us, and we have not responded. You have spoken and even knocked, and even when we were conscious that it was indeed you, in the presence of the Spirit, still we neglected it and resisted it. But how wonderful that you should overcome even that. Help us to find ourselves in the song, and help us to find our consolation in the faithfulness of the Beloved. In each song we see a weak spouse. We see the Princess of Peace fainting and failing, full of inconsistencies. But we see a Beloved who is always constant and always faithful and always loving and kind. So bless to us our meditation on the Word. Hear the prayers of your people tonight. There are many associated with the congregation and in it who are facing ill health and serious conditions and those who are receiving treatment and investigative procedures. In these things, we are reminded of mortality constantly. Man that is born of woman at best is of few days and full of trouble, and we are born to such trouble as the sparks fly upwards. So we pray, O Lord, that you would bless affliction to them and to all of us, making us wise unto salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Let's close by singing the words that I <coughs> referred to just at the beginning of the meeting in Psalm 27. <coughs> at verse 4, One thing I of the Lord desired and will seek to obtain at all days of my life, I may within God's house remain. 
that I the beauty of the Lord behold me and admire, and that I in his holy place may reverently inquire. And verses 7 and 8. O Lord, give ear unto my voice when I do cry to thee. Upon me also mercy have, and do thou answer me. Now, listen to this verse particularly. When thou didst say, Seek ye my face, then unto thee reply, Thus did my heart, above all things thy face, Lord, seek will I. That's the spirit of someone who doesn't mind that they've put their robe off or washed their feet, but will gladly open the door to the Saviour. So, verse um, 4 and verses 7 and 8. Let's stand to sing.